Father, we just thank you for this time together. We pray that it would be edifying and glorifying to you because we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. And Lord, as we come to your throne of grace, we pray for those who are even traveling now coming to this conference, that they might have traveling mercies. And that this conference might be a blessing to you and to your kingdom. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I am uh, Sam Molind, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, some clues to uh, systemic disease. Some things that we look at are going to be somewhat pathognomonic. We want to talk about maybe some of the trends, and we want to have some time for questions and answers when we're, when we're finished. And, and really, the general principles of, of differential diagnosis certainly are to understand the patient's chief complaint, the history of that present illness, as you know, uh, the onset, the course. In other words, have they, has this been a repetitive course? Are there times when this a particular thing is not there. Is there any previous treatment that the patient had regarding this kind of uh, lesion? And, and then the past medical history can often give us some, some clues, family, social, occupational histories. You all are very familiar with those things, so I really don't have to go through that. And then sort of a review of the systems, including medications that the patient is on if they're certainly in the States. Now, when we're overseas, the, the situation is a little bit different because we're also working through an interpreter, and many are not on uh, medications. So uh, if we look at now the physical exam, we want to sort of look, of course, and these things are obvious, so we're going to go really quickly the visual appearance of what we're looking at. What's the color? Is it elevated? What is the surface like? Uh, and then the location. All those things will sort of give us a little clue often as to, you know, what the problem is. By uh, palpation, I mean, we can tell a lot about the consistency of that particular lesion. Is it, is it soft? Is it fluctuant? Does it have a, a, an increased pain level when we touch it or, or push on it? Uh, is it mobile? All those kind of things, of course, are also very important when we're trying to discern, make a differential diagnosis. Uh, percussion is important for a number of reasons. Certainly, if, uh, if, if it's an abscess cavity or a cavity with fluid, Percussing it will allow a fluid wave often to be felt. And so those kind of issues are, are very important, you know, when we're, when we're looking at it and trying to discern where to, where to go from this point. Uh, we can also listen, particularly many uh, lesions may be vascular. And uh, we certainly want to you know, be able to discern vascular lesions where we might have uh, bruit or, or hear uh, vascular abnormalities. And then, of course, uh, 
our differential diagnosis. The classification of lesions is, you know, really, is it originating in bone or soft tissue? And sometimes, of course, we see that when we look at patients. We see, you know, the, the lesion uh, as it presents on the surface, maybe in the skin surface or it may be on the mucosa. But we need maybe to investigate further. Does that really come from the maxillary sinus? Or is it actually coming from the bone? And we're seeing just the tip of the iceberg uh, for that lesion. And so the extent of the lesion, are there more than one lesions? Are they, is, is it a lesion on the mucous membrane? And it's present in other mucous membranes that the patient has. Is it, is it present in the eyelids? Is it present in the genital area? Is it, so we, those kind of issues sort of help us in discerning the, the general nature and the classification of the type of lesion that we're looking at is, what is the color? Is it a pigmented lesion? Is it a hyperkeratotic lesion? Is it a white lesion? Is it uh, blue, etc.? Those kind of things also are helpful when we're looking at that. Uh, is the lesion exophytic? In other words, uh, is it growing out, appear to be growing out from the tissue? And then is it ulcerative? What's, what's the surface characteristic? Is it vascular? Those kind of issues are very, very important when we're sort of looking at the whole total, uh, total thing there. There is also a sort of a radiographic evaluation that we can do. It used to be that even on the mission field, we, you know, couldn't do that. We were very limited in the kind of, of things that we could do radiographically. But uh, since the advent of the NOMAD, I don't know if you've heard of the NOMAD, but it's a it's a portable x-ray unit that is used dentally, and it can be used either digitally, can be used with automatic developer and fixer in the same film. Uh, so it is very practical to use on the mission field. Uh, and uh, the people that make Nomad, Ambibex, are also making a x-ray unit that is handheld, that will be able to be used in medicine. So we may even be able to do some chest x-rays and some other limb x-rays and so forth with a portable unit on the mission field, which I think is, is very, very, very helpful for us. So certainly if you're in a hospital environment, the CT scan is, is very important in certain instances. The MRI, we have nuclear medicine studies. There are some lesions that occur in the posterior portion of the tongue, and that posterior midline portion of the tongue is where embryologically the thyroid gland descends. And sometimes all the thyroid tissue that that patient has is in his tongue. It has never migrated down to the normal thyroid, and, and you might in that case, if you were suspicious, look at nuclear medicine studies to see iodine uptake and see whether there is a, a functioning thyroid in the, in the neck or whether all of it's in the tongue. The, uh, there's diagnostic ultrasound. I found that very helpful. We uh, did some studies on the field a number of years uh, with uh, a sonocyte, 
And uh, it's a very portable unit. Its its picture is put on sort of like a computerized thing. It has a number of different uh, transducers that are used. It's a very accurate one. We can do flow studies and, and, and everything. Well, how is that sort of helpful on the mission field? Well, if you happen to have someone who's there and you get a patient into the office and you find out that he has a lot of trismus. He can't open his, his mouth. And, you're, and, and a, a lot of facial spell, swelling as well. Is it a cellulitis? Is this the spread of a cellulitis that's, that's causing this? Or is it an abscess cavity? You have limited time that you're going to be there. And so... Ultrasound can be very helpful in discerning a fascial space abscess versus just a cellulitis, a swelling of the tissue. And what does it mean therapeutically? It means basically you can get higher blood levels if you use intravenous antibiotics or intramuscular antibiotics, whereas if it's a cellulitis, it may not be as important to get the high levels To use other means, you may be able to use PO kinds of medicine. It makes a difference in follow-up because the earlier you can incise and drain an abscess, the the quicker the the resolution. And you can also get a culture. So there's a lot of helpful aspects of using sometimes the diagnostic ultrasound. I know many times before that we would maybe aspirate with a needle into an area that we thought was abscessed just to make sure, well, there doesn't, we're not getting any positive pus return, we, you know, so forth. So it was those kind of things, but now today, even on the mission field, we can do a lot of these things. Now, today also, our change in climate and, and situation lends us to some other things. Uh, this is a lesion of the tongue. Uh, it's indurated. It's painful. There are some lymph node swellings associated with that in the cervical area. It is a primary syphilitic canker. Now, is it contagious? It is. Will everyone that has or you notify or you think about uh, this syphilitic lesion, if you do a, uh, a blood test, will it be positive? Not necessarily. So the best thing to do is what? Is a dark field examination. So the microscope is important with the scraping. You don't usually like to get a lot of saliva in there because there's spirochetes in your saliva. So you need a, a dark field exam with, with scrapings. You can make a diagnosis. And uh, always the second stage of syphilis is is uh, contagious and infectious and uh, as well. So we're seeing more oral sexually transmitted diseases than we have seen ever before. As a matter of fact, in this past year, there have been really an epidemic of oral pharyngeal cancers. And they're related directly to the human papillomavirus 16. 
So it is really uh, something that we need to be aware of when we see, you know, these kinds of situations. And the other thing that I wanted to mention to you, and when we get to some of the other uh, looks at at cancer, is the fact that um, sexually transmitted diseases are also a problem. If you happen to see a patient looking like this, what would you be thinking? That's a bad bruise. No. That denture doesn't fit. No. Kaposi's sarcoma. Right. Now, Kaposi's sarcoma is, uh, is obviously one of the real concerns that we have with people that are developing or have HIV. Kaposi's sarcoma, and there are a number of uh, gingival, leukoplakic-type lesions that occur in, in addition to candidiasis. So we see a number of lesions that occur that are directly related to patients that have HIV and that, that, are, that are present there. And the palate is one of the more prominent areas for Kaposi's. I've seen it in the cheek areas. I've seen it on the tongue and so forth. So Kaposi's sarcoma is certainly one of the areas that, now, I don't mean we should chase zebras, but I mean, basically, you don't go out looking for a zebra. You, when you, see, you know, if, if, if you hear footprints or, or hear clip-clop, clip-clop out your window, you don't run to the window and expect to see a zebra. You run to the window and think, I'm going to see a horse, because usually that's what you would find. But if you hear somebody say, look at that crazy striped animal, or something like that, you might go to the ze- looking for a zebra. So something is going to give you a warning. Say, wait a minute. This is not the run-of-the-mill kind of stuff. This may be a zebra, and we can look a little further. But uh, don't, don't go running after zebras from the very beginning. These are some oral lesions that occur in the cheek area, on the tongue. They take various forms. Some have a little striae, a white striae. Some have little areas of atrophy, but very white uh, areas with some denuded. They they occur on the tongue, uh, can be quite remarkable, and even uh, look a little bit like what we often would call leukoplakia, you know, which means nothing more than a white plaque. Uh, some of the areas, particularly of the ulcerative type, are, are a lot of uh, hyperkeratosis on the tongue area, and then that, that ulcer that, that's in the middle. But the key in diagnosis of this, which is really virtually pathognomonic, is the striae that you see there. Do you see those white, almost lines that, that run down? They call them Wickham striae. And uh, this is lichen planus. Is lichen planus something you should be concerned about if there's a patient that comes in like this? 
Well, actually it is. There's been a lot of controversy as to whether it's related to an increased risk of uh, cancer. And actually it has shown itself to be as closely related to a leukoplakia as you can get. This, the exact cause of this is not known, but it's really an antibody reaction that happens uh, and below the level of the uh, epithelium. So it's at the connective tissue junction. And uh, histologically, you can see that uh, if, you, if you were to do a biopsy of it. But leukoplakia is a very interesting entity. There, there is a part of lichen planus that you see over there in the gingival tissue. And often they call that, um, that gingival, those gingival changes, you, you see it looks almost uh, like uh, uh, verrucous changes that are there. Uh, dysplastic changes. But if true lichen planus is, is there, we're also going to see changes in some of the extensor surfaces of the arms and the legs. And, and they, these are hyperkeratotic. They're hexagonal. There's often itching. And interestingly enough, patients that have that uh, usually don't keep the cutaneous lesions, you know, that, that long. So basically what we have here is a chronic immunologic inflammatory mucocutaneous kind of uh, lesion. And we see oral lichen planus in patients that are uh, predisposed to develop cancer. Does it mean that every lesion that you see of lichen planus you have to biopsy? Definitely not. The most common ones that lead to a predisposition with cancer are the ones that are ulcerative. So these patients often complain of, of pain, and uh, you can make the diagnosis. If you see a patient and you really can't make the diagnosis, you don't see those striae coming out from, from any of the varieties, then it is probably a good idea to do, uh, do a biopsy. You saw the hypertrophic, uh, hyperkeratotic kind of white areas that, that were around that, including the ulcerative areas. And there is an atrophic or almost clear area sometimes. We saw that in the cheek as well. So the erosive type with has a pseudomembrane, the ulceration, the keratosis, the erythema, all that that circles around there is the one we're most concerned about when it go, comes to uh, a chance of developing uh, cancer. And then there's the uh, bullous type. So, like, how about this? I, I know you folks uh, are dealing with many times patients that are on a lot of different medications. Some are on non-steroidals. Some are on uh, sulfonamide uh, drugs. Uh, this, you know, and when we're talking about that, we're talking about patients that are on septrum sometime, bactrum, and they, they, they all of a sudden start to develop some lesions 
that uh, are in the mouth, and people may not be sort of aware of that, they even develop lesions in the eyelids. Right in there, you're seeing a, a, a lesion, and over here, and you can also see the redness getting into the conjunctiva of the eyes. And if you look at the patient's hand, you see that those kind of lesions. And, and so what are you thinking of, all of you dermatologists? Well, this is a serious reaction. We call it the Stevens-Johnson syndrome often. And it, uh, it, it, it uh, is, uh, well, these are what we call bullseye lesions. So when we see these kinds of things, and, it, and it's in the mucous membrane, can be in the mucous membrane, any mucous membrane. We saw it in the eyes. We saw it in the, in the mouth area. Ulcerations, pseudomembrane, lips are often involved, and, it's, and the other name that we call it about is erythema multiforma. But it, and that's because it takes on all these different characteristics, but the Stevens-Johnson syndrome is one of those areas with uh, an acute autoimmune inflammatory reaction. And it's most frequently in children or young adults, and it may occur once or recur. And one of the prime reasons for recurrence, herpes infection. Herpetic, uh, recurrent herpes in either by the, in the lip areas or generally, or, uh, and so when we see those kind of situations, we want to sort of immediately start to think about this rare chronic form and, and triggers being the herpes simplex virus or some of the drug reactions, including uh, non-steroidals, anti-inflammatories. And so there, there is fever. Malaise in, in severe cases, and, and this is very painful. PO input is certainly hampered. Lesions are all over the cheeks, the tongues, the lips. And so it's a very painful kind of thing to go through. And uh, oral lesions commonly appear on, uh, with skin lesions in approximately 70%. So, you, you know, it's, it's important to take a good look at patients to see those target or bullseye kind of lesions in, 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 this, in this entity. It's, it's treated with high doses of steroids. Depends on how significant it is and identification of what is the primary cause and eliminating it, you know. Um, so those are the areas when we ought to look. Now, if we look at this, this is a, a lot different than the other ulcerations that we've seen previously. How is it different? Look at the area of ulceration that's here. Where is, you know, and that's certainly red and raw and an ulcer, but there's no what? Inflammatory response, is there? You know what I mean? Notice how red the others were and, uh, and so forth. Not, not so here. Look at that. You can see the ulcer. You can see a raw bed, but you don't see an inflammatory response. And immediately, when you see that kind of thing, look at those. Pseudomembranes, ulceration, 
Where's the inflammatory response? You don't see it. So what we're talking about there is an agranulocytosis, uh, granulocytopenia, neutropenias, that where there is no inflammatory cells or, or tremendously reduced numbers of inflammatory cells. You know, in these particular cases, we see patients that are on uh, any metabolites sometimes, whose blood would be uh, depressed because of the marrow, and, and they, you know, exhibit some of those kinds of things. So there's a reduction in the blood granulocyte count, and the body's main defense against, you know, bacteria or fungal infections. So, I mean, that's really almost like pathognomonic. If I see someone like that, I want to get a CBC. I want to get a blood count and find out what's going on, what's missing, and how, and, and get a history on how this, this thing is uh, going and, and, and what's developing. Now, we, we, this is sort of the opposite. <laughs> All of a sudden, now we're seeing what? We see some ulcerations, but now what? We see some profound erythema around there, and every area of ulceration has. And, and that's not only under the tongue. It's on the lip areas. And what do we see? We see a lot of salvation. So you know what? It's painful. When, when, you know, when you're trying to look at that, you're trying to pull the lip out, you're examining that, it's painful. So the patient is really salvating. It's not because I was going to promise her a lollipop. So the next thing is uh, these kind of punctate ulcerations that occur uh, there may be some lymphadenopathy. Notice that both of these were children, weren't they? They were children. Uh, we could see mixed dentition, teeth erupting, and, uh, you know, what do you think we're dealing with there? No, what this is is uh, herpes primary, herpes simplex virus. Okay, and how that happens is, uh, and, and usually these are smaller than aphthi. Aphthi are, are usually a little larger. Aphthi are usually more involved. You, you very r rarely see aphthi, you know, off the sort of the movable tissue. And this you, would, you can see on the tongue and, and other areas which really are not, sort of as we, we don't think of it as loose, you know, mucosa. But primary herpetic gingivostomatitis, it, it's a transmissible infection. So kids that put their fingers in their mouth, that suck their fingers, that rub their eyes, not good. Not good. Because this, this is transmitted to the eyes and, and other areas of the body. So it is not a, not a, uh, not a good thing. Uh, what we often do for them symptomatically is uh, give them some Benadryl elixir and kaopectate or something like that uh, that, that will, uh, they can use as a rinse. And, it, and, uh, and that's, that's often a big help. Sometimes we'll even use uh, a lidocaine rinse. But what's the problem with them mainly? It's, it's nutrition. And how, how do we sort of give them 
added fluids. They get dehydrated. They don't want to eat and so forth. So uh, there's many ways of, of, of doing that. A lot of the things that we give are, are actually painful to oral ulcers. So people say, oh, give them ice cream. Well, ice cream is hypertonic, really, as it turns out with an oral ulcer, and it's really quite uncomfortable. So, I mean, if you were going to make a sort of a cooling, more refreshing kind of uh, of drink. Sometimes a sherbet freeze, you know, a little with a blender is is good to get them. They like the orange or lime or what whatever, and you can actually put a some Sprite in it and blenderize it up. Some of the dietary supplements that are liquid can be uh, sort of I won't say watered down, but milked down so that it's not so hypertonic itself and be irritating. But uh, and then oral analgesics are very very helpful. And uh, but the other thing is sometimes uh, the situation is is so bad that you really have to use some of the antiviral agents to help uh, calm this situation down. But fortunately, uh, that's not all the time. Now, what what are we looking at here? Does anyone have an idea? And there are a number of conditions that might you know give you. Uh, some look at that. Do you know what that is? That's that we're looking at the sort of the hard and soft palate junction there. We see this pigmented area. Petechiae is what you're looking at. A little, you know, uh, hemorrhage there. Some of them are more worse than others and involve the hard palate and the soft palate. Little petechial hemorrhages that have occurred there in the vascularity, and sometimes you see patients that have some lymph node swellings in the neck. They, they might have malaise. They may be tired and sleepy all the time. As you take, check their history, they may be a teenager. What are you thinking? You're the, that's it, infectious mononucleosis. So, you know, you've got those kind of things that, you know, you, you, you think about uh, the cause is Epstein-Barr virus and, and uh, uh, herpes virus type 4. Infects 50% of the children by age 5. It doesn't mean it's clinically symptomatic in, in that, every one of that age group, but it's not very contagious. Uh, you know, they used to call it, what, the kissing disease? But it's not very contagious. Only 5% of patients acquire the disease from someone with an acute infection. But in its most significant and severe times, there's fever, fatigue, pharyngitis, adenopathy, splenomegaly, and hepatic complications. Often mean that if it happens in a young high school student that's playing football, you may not want to have him continue playing football for a while, because if he has enlargement of his spleen, he may be more prone to a splenic rupture and uh, with, with physical contact and activity. So I think it's very important that we not get him involved in that. How about this young gal? Has some swelling, has some pain, has some fever. Well, this guy is involved with the same kind of problem, the swelling in, in the more parotid area. 
And this lady has a little swelling in that right parotid area. Now, how do we differentiate some of the problems that we're looking at there? Well, if, if the patient pulled her cheek back, as I asked her to do, and I could see that there was what? Yeah, there's some, there's some pus coming out of that orifice of her parotid gland. And so, basically, in the older woman, we're looking at a suppurative parotitis. Now, in the younger, we didn't see that. I mean, there was fluid coming out of her parotid gland. She was still febrile and swollen. So that was mumps. But it, this is a non, this is a suppurative parotitis and quite often from dehydration, someone being in the hospital for a while and we're very concerned about uh, a strep in, in those particular cases as well. So we want to cover that. So there's what we call mumps and of course there's the, the, uh, Vaccination now, so it's an RNA virus transmitted direct by direct contact with salivary uh, droplets. And with your immunizations that really started in 1977, you have the mumps, measles, rubella vaccination. And, and many virally induced salivary gland enlargements are there for us to sort of investigate. Uh, notice that the viral ones do not have suppuration, usually. So it's a cytomegalic virus, the HIV, the Epstein-Barr, and some echoviruses, etc. So those are the things that we're looking at. Over here, we see, you know, some dryness, some bleeding of the gingival tissue around where some of the teeth are. Uh, let's see. We see that some petechiae again in the in the oral pharynx there in the, the hard palate, soft palate area. We see some skin petechiae. Okay, so what are we thinking about here? Idiopathic thrombocenic purpura. Remember, you know what that is? It's a decrease in platelets. It's caused in, in patients that, that either have it idiopathic, means no known cause, or some uh, added engulfment and restriction of platelets, sometimes with the spleen. Uh, it develops from an antibody directed against the platelet antigen. It's usually chronic in adults and acute and self-limiting in children. And uh, so that's one of the things that we see when we see petechiae, bleeding, no lymphadenopathy. So that helps separate some of the uh, things that we've been looking at uh, in that area. Here's a fellow that, that's come in and he, he wanted to look good, I think, and so he got his lips enlarged. No. He, uh, he said, all of a sudden, my lips started swelling. And uh, here's a, 
a gal that had sort of the same problem. She said, all of a sudden, my eye started swelling, my lips started swelling. You have some patients that say their tongue started swelling. They find it hard to, to, to breathe. This kind of condition, uh, angioneurotic edema, can be a very serious problem. It can go on to an anaphylactic reaction. Uh, they often develop this rapid swelling of the head, the neck area, extends into the larynx, and, and uh, there can be fatal respiratory failure. Uh, so this is something that is uh, critical to uh, analyze and know what's going on. And uh, actually, we treat it virtually like there's an anaphylactic reaction that we would begin with some epi, we would give them Benadryl, we would give them, you know, and all this injectable steroids as well. And then we want to certainly find out what the, what the ultimate problem is. And, and that last one was that we were administering, um, let me get that for you. We were administering oxygen, particularly if there's the, the pulse oximetry is below you know, 90 and so forth. You don't want to take any, any chances with those patients. All right, now here we have some gingival changes that look uh, a bit hyperplastic. This is very much different than anything you've seen before. This is a pseudomembrane or a bolus, which is a bolus, you know, is a, is a, look, looks like a, a large fluid-filled sac that has broken. And what you see there is the white area is the covering of that. So this fluid-filled sac is broken, and there is uh, the bullae are broken, and, and this area is painful. And so it reveals sort of ulcerative areas that are, in the, on the chin, if you do a biopsy, these are, these are areas that are sort of difficult to biopsy because if you take a knife and you cut the area through, you'll pull the tissue off the surface because it's, it's a bullet. You usually won't be able to get a nice biopsy so that somebody can take a look at it and tell you what, what's, going, what's going on. And there's some sank cells in there, you can see it. It's a subepithelial uh, bolus. And basically, if you use, if you're careful and make an incision outside of the area you're trying to biopsy, little V, take a, a uh, like a, a tweezers, a tissue tweezers, and lift it up, and then use your scissors to, to cut through to make your biopsy. You won't pull that tissue off. Then you put it down on a piece of uh, paper. Uh, and so that it doesn't shrink up and crenate when you put it into your other things. And then the pathologist is really happy because, boy, you gave him something he can look at and, uh, and, and sort of help him make a, make a diagnosis on it. Pemphigus is a serious um, disease. Uh, it's potentially life-threatening. Uh, there are, is benign mucous membrane pemphigoid, which is not 
as serious, but it is a chronic disease. But if it is pemphigus with the submucosal subepithelial bullae that we saw in the histology, then it is a potentially life-threatening disease. And uh, the most common form is pemphigus vulgaris, about 80% of the cases that we see that either the family medicine doctor or one of the people sent to us or we have a hospital consult is, is is that particular form. Uh, and uh, these uh, epithelial lesions, antibodies reacts with the deb, deb, uh, desmosomal glycoproteins, and that's where you see a cleft starting to form. Fluid fills the cleft, and there, the uh, sank cells that you see in there are actually dead basal cells that have come down into, into, that, into that area. And so... The uh, acantholysis is, uh, is what happens if you take a tongue blade and you snap it against the mucosa, they will form a bullite right there before your eyes. So that is, uh, I mean, it, your, your patient isn't exactly happy with you doing that. So I'm not advocating that being a, a great way to make friends and influence people. But at any rate, the, that, that is a, a way that really, uh, you could, uh, in a small way, tell about this. Now, when you see this kind of, of lesions in the mouth, too, you know, there are two things. Certainly, people have enlargement of the gingival tissue when they are on medication like dilantin. And uh, by by giving the patients about two milligrams of, uh, with their dilantin, um, the, the uh, lesion itself can either be hyperplastic if it's dilantin, and often the dentist then has to sort of do a gingivoplasty on those things if they get so bad. But that Two milligrams of folic acid with the patient that's taking dilantin after the, the trimming will often help in the recurrence. They won't have as much, and it won't be as significant. This particular patient does not have dilantin hyperplasia. This is another patient, same idea. Notice that it's mainly interdental, that it's very large, It also looks uh, red. The thing that's most important for us to understand as we examine the patient and we see what? Again, petechiae, okay? So this, when you see petechiae, we're thinking about things that might give us that bleeding tendency, that problem. And that's what you're seeing with the gingival uh, situation. There's fever, there's uh, cervical lymphadenopathy, oral bleeding is often uh, present when you see that hyperplastic, you know, tissue with gingival infiltrates of the uh, leukemic cells and uh, oral infections, oral ulcers, 
when we have patients that just have an infection around a third molar, a wisdom tooth, and they have leukemia, it, it may not matter how much antibiotics we give them. They can be in big trouble, serious trouble, because their own immune system, their, their uh, granulocytes are not going to be working. And uh, so it, it can be a very serious problem. The oroflora is potentially the life-threatening source of infection from them. And, and uh, so that those kind of situations lead us to an infection with gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. Now, this is one of the only patients, and I've often heard about it, and people said a lot of things that I have seen that has this angulochylitis, which is this area adjacent to the corners of the mouth, and also this balding tongue with a red, sort of a red border around there. Classically, this is the only one I've ever seen that has an iron deficiency anemia. And I've seen patients with iron deficiency anemia, and I've never seen that. So I don't know... uh, how often that really occurs, but in its classic presentation, iron deficiency anemia brings that the depapillation, red fissured border, fissured tongue, and the uh, corners of the mouth in that way. They say uh, 58% have the angular chylitis, the glossitis 42%, and the pale oral mucosa, 33%, but also, I mean, they'll have pale mucosa everywhere. If you look at the eyes, you know, the lower lids, those are, those are often pale as well. So you have a microcytic, hemochromic red blood cell uh, with chronic iron deficiency. Now, if you look at these areas of... of uh, and, and we're going to move quickly here. These are areas where the lower lip has been chronically exposed to actinic radiation, the sun. And people will say, you know, I've had that for a long time. And it doesn't go away. That is not a good sign. I mean, when, when people have a hyperkeratotic lesion on the lip that doesn't go away. Some are cracked. Some are, uh, have little uh, scabs on them, uh, like a fissured border. And if you look at that really closely, it looks like there's some, there's some swelling here or induration. Okay? So already that is not a good sign as well. And so when we get these kind of things, it actually is field cancerization. I mean, you may see it here, but the whole lower lip really has been involved. And so the problem is, and you can see that as you actually look here. Look at some of the changes. Look at here, here, over here. And if we were to go around, look over there. There's, it's, it's field cancerization. If you're critical and look at that, it's not healthy mucosa. But one of the great things that's come along for us is uh, the CO2 laser. 
So basically, we can use, uh, and you can see a number of areas on this tongue. You can use the CO2 laser. To, we used to use stripping procedures, and we used to pull the little mucosa over to the vermilion border and all that kind of thing. Well, if you just use that uh, CO2 laser, you make a nice cut just off the vermilion border and, and back around there. You remove that whole area of, of epithelium or that whole area of tissue so that the area looks ugly. And uh, then you just keep it very moistened. You could use Vaseline or whatever to just keep that area protected and covered. And then as you do that, believe it or not, in like a week or so, week to ten days, it's growing back. And when that's finished, I don't know, I didn't have that. It, when that's finished, you would never know that he has had any kind of surgery on his lip. I mean, it's beautiful. And it's not painful. Would you believe it? It is not painful with the CO2 laser. Patient said, I said, how are you doing? He said, fine. I'm not, I'm not in pain. I never took my pain medication. So, anyhow, we're going to be talking a little bit about squamous cell carcinoma. It used to be a disease of increasing age. It is not anymore. And most of that is because of the sexual revolution and the fact that oral sex has been so prevalent and the fact that there now is, uh, I think in this past year, 2013, 42,000 newly diagnosed cases of oropharyngeal carcinoma. And remember me mentioning the human papillomavirus 16 being present in a majority of all those cases, and 18 as well. And the reason over three decades we have not seen improvement in the long-term prognosis for patients is because we catch it too late. We catch it too late. It's disfiguring. It's difficult for surgical reconstruction. It's uh, hard for, you know, the patient to talk afterwards or continued PO input. We are not going to make our progress with surgery. And with this new epidemic of oral sex and the human papillomavirus that we know causes cervical cancer in probably 98% of the cervical cancers is now what we're seeing in the mouth. And we're seeing it in young people, not old people. So it used to be we said, hey, it's the schminkers you got to watch out for, the smokers and the drinkers. And so they were older, and they were the ones that, that were going to develop the oral cancers. Not so. Now it's the young people. And so there is a new... Thing And I want you to sort of look at this. I, there is a new thing that's, that's out. It's called the Oral uh, ID Cancer Screening uh, Luminescent uh, Evaluator. It's Oral ID Cancer Fluorescence Technology. 
no rinses. Before we used to do super vital staining or something rinse, and then we'd use a acetic acid, little uh, light acetic acid rinse, and we'd look for these areas that became stained the greatest. And that was the area we'd do the biopsy. Well, with this, you can do a screening with the light and the fluorescence, and it'll pick those areas up. So if you look at that, it's, it's really quite a remarkable thing. Um, my information sources say it, it runs close to $1,000, but it is absolutely life-saving and life uh, for, for young people. So I want to leave you sort of with that information, and uh, I want to remind you a little bit about Sir William Osler and, and what he said about medicine and what he said about dentistry. He said the practice is not a trade. It's a calling, not a business. A calling which your heart will be exercised equally with your head. And I know in many cases, uh, residencies and others seem to want you to forget your heart. Don't connect yourself with that patient. Don't get too personal. Well, we know that there's a lot of Christian residency programs that aren't that way. But it is so important for us from the standpoint of being giving care, compassionate, loving care for our patients, for their natural life, that we do become connected and that we are observant and connected. I, I know that uh, when I was in training uh, at Mass General, they, they used to say, you know what's the 90% you know that it isn't important because you know it. It's the 10% you don't know that could make the difference in someone's life or not. So those are the things we want to try and bring out. Are there any questions that I can answer for you? Any, any questions? I'm sorry, once again, what was the name of that uh, oral cancer ID screening? Oral ID, luminescent technology. Oral ID. I think if you could probably go on the uh, Internet, you know, and just look that up, it, it would be helpful. It's very interesting because on their sites, they also tell a little bit about the trends and the statistics regarding, you know, some of the reasons that, that I think we have to, you know, look at those things. And, uh you know, we're at a point where oral cancer kills one person every hour. And uh, with that, uh, three out of four people are infected at some point in their lives with, now I find that hard to believe, with human papillomavirus. Three out of four infected at some point in their life with human papillomavirus, which means there's a 50-fold increase, 50-fold increase in oral cancer. So that's, that's really, really critical. Thank you for asking that. Are you picking that up down into 
Teenagers. Teenagers. And you know, there was a time when you and I would never think of looking for probably oral cancer in the, I mean, a 12 to a 16-year-old. Now, we always knew that people who chew tobacco, even though they might be teenagers, were, were prone because of the tobacco, and sometimes they even put ground glass in, in chewing tobacco to, you know, perforate the mucosa to give you the full kick and all this kind of stuff. But today, it's human papillomavirus in oral sex. And we're seeing cancer at a younger, younger age. I mean 16, 18 years of age. And that's, to me, wow. You know, that having the oral ID and an easy way to evaluate some areas if we need to. We need to catch it early. We need to be conscious of it. And we need to understand that the demographics of oral cancer is changing. And we have to practice in a different way. So that's, that's really the deal. Um, what about trigeminal neuralgia? And like if there's a dark spot in the gum um, and there's a, a question about is it a need for a root canal or is it trigeminal? How do you yeah, well, usually trigeminal neuralgia is characterized by a lancing, stabbing pain. A patient will come in and say, you know, it feels like I had a firecracker explode on my face. And then it's, it's gone after a short while. Now it may continue, and every time you touch a particular spot or you swallow, there's a trigger zone, classically a trigger area, that starts this process of, Pain and classically trigeminal neuralgia is in people 50 and older. If the patient is younger and they have some of the characteristics, the pain, the distribution, we often call that atypical facial pain. You know what I mean? In other words, it doesn't have all the characteristics of what we call trigeminal neuralgia. And, and really, a, a, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon or a dentist can do differential blocks on a patient to tell, if does this take the pain away? And now you, you know, do you feel better with this and, and so forth? And, uh, and, and certainly, depending on the institution where you're at, if the definitive diagnosis is made with trigeminal neuralgia, I still feel it is better to start with like a Tegretol or some kind of medication to see how that works. But most of the medication you take develops a tolerance. And, if you, and I do not recommend alcohol blocks for trigeminal neuralgia. We use uh, radio wave, uh, you know, that, that's actually radio wave uh, disintegration of the nerve and still try and keep some sensation. When you do an alcohol block, you kill the nerve and you think that's going to be forever, but it doesn't last forever. The patient comes back and now they have a neuroma or some other thing in the nerve and it's really a problem. So it can be, a, it, what you're talking about is a difficult thing. Interestingly enough, I just got back from China and a lady came in and she had atypical facial pain like that. You know, she was just talking about it and, and it was, uh, 
And, and we went over all of her x-rays, and she had been seen by people, and what the medicine she was taking. And I'm trying to do all this with an interpreter. And so we were got so far, and we had been told, be careful, do not proselytize. Don't you dare, you know. And we're watching you, and we're going to send people in that are plants to see how you guys are doing. Well, after I've talked to this patient, she says, I'm a Christian. So I never think about anything. I said, well, let's pray. And I closed the door, and we, we prayed with her and, and everything. That's a very, very serious thing, you know. And uh, you, you just can't give up with those patients or, or the patients that, you know, I had another patient with systemic lupus and necrosis of the mandible and all kinds of things when I saw her. And, you know, physicians and, and dentists tend to say, okay, I've done all I can, and that's it. And when they see the patient, they think, gosh, that patient represents a failure to me. You know, I've, I've studied all these years. I've done all these things. I can't help this patient. So they don't want to see the patient anymore. You know? And that, it, that's not the direction that we ought to be going. You know, I knew in many cases there wasn't much I could, could really do with her. I, I got her set up to, to get hyperbaric oxygen treatment and all kinds of things. And she actually walked out on the treatments. She, didn't, she, she had other things that were more important for her. But she had seizures. She had kidney failure. She had, I mean, she had angina, you, you name it, all from the vasculitis of this disease. And I said to my secretary, if Joan calls, we'll see her at 5 o'clock. There isn't a thing in the world I could do for Joan but talk. And when she passed away and I went to her funeral, her family said, you know, she never stopped talking about you that you were the only place she could find a haven of rest. Someone who would listen. Someone who she knew would care. Even though I was frustrated. You know, you think I, uh, that she taught me a lot, I know. But I learned a lot from her. And I grew a lot with her that made me much more sensitive to the caring for a patient, even if. And I I had another patient that I found an oral cancer on, and she said, look, I'm 80 years old. (laughs) All my friends are dying. I'm over 80, and I'm not going to do anything. So I, I tried to tell her, you know, I think we can heal this. I think we can do the surgery. I think we can help you, you know. She said, no, you don't get it. I don't, I don't want to do that. I said, okay. So I later took care of her through her whole hospice experience. Dorothy and I went to visit her often during those times. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's up to a patient to make those decisions. She said, my family is, is gone. My friends are dying. They're all gone. I, I don't want to go through all this surgery and all. Loving, caring, 
competent, compassionate care for the natural life of the patient. That's what we're called to. And hallelujah for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your compassion in our lives. We know that you are the great physician. And Father, in being the great physician, we pray that you'll open our hearts and minds to the wisdom that only you possess. That as we care for patients, we would sense your presence, your power, your purposes, and your precepts. Even more important than any knowledge that we have, we would get our wisdom from you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, that we can depend upon you. And we do ask all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.